Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not been silent, but that you reveal your will to us for our good, for our life and our thriving. And thank you for the, for the promises you attach to this word that you have told us is living, is active, is attended by your spirit in such a way that it does work on our heart that we could never hope to do for ourselves. So Lord, may the spirit dwell richly among us this morning. Would you show us Jesus? Would you make us not only hearers of this word, but doers of it for the glory of your name, for the good of this city. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, for a few chapters now, we've been in the part of Nehemiah where the, the work the Lord has called him to do and lead his people in, in rebuilding the city, is, is not just progressing, it is thriving. It is hitting on all cylinders. You might even say it is nearly miraculous what they've been able to pull off in the building of the wall. But as the progress ramps up, so does the opposition. And, and that fact, I think, all on its own is worth a little reflection. And, and, you know, it very well may be that you've actually been reflecting on that fact, that how it is when, when things are going well, you know, you're certain that the Lord's in it. But when they're not, you know, how easily we begin to suspect that he's forgotten us, uh, that he's had enough of us, that he's punishing us or something else like that. And, and I've thought about that um, in the use of this phrase that maybe you use, I, I, I certainly do and have, uh, this phrase, uh, it's a God thing. Uh, we tend to use that phrase when some unexpected blessing blows into our life. You know, we get an unexpected promotion. Uh, we come across a dear friend we haven't seen in years. Um, our house goes on the market. And we get an offer on the first day for above asking. And, and, and that stuff happens, and we say, well, you know, it was a God thing. But what we never hear are things like, I lost my job today. It was a God thing. Or this, my girlfriend broke up with me unexpectedly. It was a God thing. Or, you know, my house was on the market for over a year, and we had to reduce the price, and I got less than that. It was a God thing. I don't, want to, I don't want to be too hard on that statement, and especially not the sentiment that goes with it. I, you know, and so, please don't feel the need to like delete it from your way of speaking, uh, for my sake at all. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to give God glory for the blessings, okay? But I use it as an example to make the point that we can lapse into this place where we begin to believe that God is only and graciously at work in the good stuff, but he's not in the bad stuff. You know, and I think it raises the question of what would it look like to live and believe in such a way that the bedrock of my life is the reality that the Lord reigns, that the Lord is at work in my life for my good in the ups and downs, in the good and bad that his affections don't wax and wane, but that he loves us in good and ill, in triumphs and trials, in sickness and in health. That's the love of God for his people. And of course, that's easy for me to say. It's a lot harder to live out 
But I, I fixed my attention on that this morning because these are really the contours of what plays out in the story of Nehemiah. There's been kingdom advance, amazing kingdom advance, but right along with it has been unbelievable kingdom opposition. And to be sure, you know, as it first emerges, it comes from the outside and, and, and kind of tamely. I mean, in chapter 2, Judah's neighbors hear what's happening, and we find out they're irritated. And by chapter 4, the irritation has kind of grown into anger and ridicule. You know, at this point in the story, it feels a little bit like, you know, what happens at the H in the HOA. You know, your, your neighbors park the RV in the driveway, and it's been there for weeks. And you get irritated, and then you're angry. And you begin to ridicule them. Well, but it wasn't long until it takes an even more serious turn so that threats of violence are being made toward Nehemiah and God's people. Now, all that's challenging stuff, but it gets even more challenging when the opposition comes not from the outside, but from the inside. Not from the enemies of God's people, but from those who would share the faith. And, you know, at first, they don't... They, those threats didn't really seem like threats at all. That's the interesting thing. Years ago, Jerry Bridges wrote a really good book called Respectable Sins. And that's kind of the, sh that's kind of the shape this takes, this particular threat. Greg preached an excellent sermon on it last week on chapter 5, where this threat emerges, where God's people begin to cry out for justice because they're being exploited economically. There's disregard for the poor. Demands are being made of those who ought to be cared for. Burdens are laid upon people who can't bear them, who are already being crushed. And it's treated, until Nehemiah speaks into it, as kind of like business as usual. But it's bad business. It is wrecking lives. It is thwarting God's good design and how he's called his people to live and love one another. Not just for themselves, but that they may be a light for the nations, right? And that was a threat, a genuine threat against the work God had called Nehemiah to in rebuilding the city and reforming its people. And so here we are in chapter 6. Nehemiah is faced with a whole new round of threats, and it's, it's critical to see how he meets those threats. And I want to dispense with one idea right off the bat, um, and that is that he meets them with his leadership ability. You know, that, that the thing that really gets Israel through is Nehemiah's leadership gifts. Nehemiah is often preached, you know, as a kind of a leadership manual for Christians. And, and just for kicks, you know, a couple of days ago, I got on Google and I just entered Nehemiah leadership training program, you know, with the thought that I would show up here and, and blow you all away that there are 392, you know, Nehemiah leadership training programs in the world. Well, the fact is, they're unquantifiable. You know, I began to just scroll through pages and I could not account for the number. They're nearly infinite, you know, programs out there for old, young business people, ministry leaders, everything in between about, you know, how the topic of this book, its main subject is that Nehemiah is a great leader and that as we read it, we ought to learn leadership lessons. And of course, you know, Nehemiah was a great leader. And there are great leadership lessons here. But the great theme of Nehemiah is not leadership. The great theme of Nehemiah is a love for the Lord born of a deep certainty that the Lord loves his people. And what provides Nehemiah with wisdom in knowing 
how to lead, and knowing what techniques should be employed is fundamentally trust. Trust in the Lord. Nehemiah isn't driven primarily by what he imagines might work. He's driven by God's word. So when he received the devastating news about Jerusalem, he didn't just parlay his position in the court of Artaxerxes. He didn't just work his connections. He didn't even start planning. He took a good long time to pray according to the promises of God. So even as he's sitting pretty in Susa, he lived with and looked to the promises of God for months, praying to the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Relying on God's promises that even though their sin was, their, their exile was the result of their sin, that when his people remember him and pursue him, they can just as surely know that they, will, that they will be gathered up and brought to the place he has chosen where he will make his name dwell. So the critical question for Nehemiah was not fundamentally, you know, what are you able to build? The first and fundamental question for Nehemiah was, what are you building upon? Will you build upon, will the foundation be one of you know, your successful leadership techniques, or will it be one of the Word of God, of trusting in the Lord, whatever may come for good or for ill? That's the secret. That's why you see him always running to the Lord, always praying, always relying on his promises. He prays before he goes to King Artaxerxes. He prays while he's standing with King Artaxerxes, silently in his heart. When he's confronted with enemies, he doesn't flex his royal credentials. He tells them that the God of heaven will make us prosper. When his enemies come at him again, he calls upon God to deal with them in chapter 4. When the work seemed about ready to fall apart and the threat seemed like too much and the building materials were terrible and everyone was ready to call it quits, he called upon his people to remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. When, it, when attack seems imminent and they're sure they're not ready to withstand it, he tells them, God will fight for us. When he sees the injustice being carried out by his people against his own people, he doesn't appeal to his own authority. He tells them that what they are doing is not good and they ought to walk in the fear of the Lord. When he gets the nobles and the priests to commit to return the money in the fields that they had taken unjustly, he shakes out his garment and says, so may God shake out every man who does not keep his promise asking God to be gracious to him, to remember me for my good, O oh God, for all that I've done for this people. He's looking to the Lord, not his own leadership. And his leadership grows out of that incredible trust in the Lord. And so here we are in chapter 6 with, with, with a great, you know, miraculous even sign that God's work has progressed in rebuilding the city. The wall is nearly complete. Uh, everything's done but the gates. It seems like unbelievable success, but not so fast. The opposition doesn't let up. It kind of cranks up, and it comes actually in three distinct phases in which Judah's enemies attempt you know, three ways to undo the work that they are called to do. First, they try to deter him. Secondly, they try to distract him. And finally, they try to destroy him. And each of these things, uh, each of these sort of salvos have some important things in common. Each one of them 
appears at first to be something other than it is and appears to be tamer than it actually is. And each one of them also is aimed squarely at Nehemiah himself, right? On the principle, you take out the quarterback, you win the game, right? So the first four verses describe the first attack with Sanballat and Geshem the Arab inviting Nehemiah to come and have a meeting. And again, this doesn't look like an attack at all, right? It's dinner. It may have even seemed attractive to Nehemiah, like maybe, you know, they're done fighting. Maybe they want to bury the hatchet. Like, you know, maybe they want to sit down and say, well played, you've gotten the best of us. It's clear we're going to have to live together. Let's talk it out. And after all, right, dialogue's a good thing. Talking's always better than fighting, isn't it? Keeping the lines of communication is always better, right? But the wild thing is, is Nehemiah flatly refuses the meeting. Given all the apparent upside, you've got to wonder why. Well, I think for starters, even though the work was nearly done, nothing's done till it's done. As impressive as the progress has been, this is a wall with no gates. And as any cattle rancher will tell you, a fence with no gates is no good. You might as well save the time and the effort and money and not build the fence at all because whatever wants to get out is going to get out and whatever wants to get in is going to get in. And Nehemiah, you know, for Nehemiah, this is foundational. This is, this is not the entire plan. This is a critical part of the plan because there's a lot of things that he's hoping to accomplish after this, as we'll see in this book as we continue to preach through it. But even though he was looking toward those things, he wasn't looking past this thing, this foundational thing, that the work had to be finished, that it was foundational to the life and the thriving of the city. And that's why he tells them, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop working and come down to you? But they're persistent. They ask him four times to come and meet with them. And then it, upon the fifth time, they change their strategy. And that change in strategy represents a second salvo. First, they tried to deter him from the work. They tried to take him away from it. But now they know this is a stubborn guy. He's not leaving the work. So now what they're saying is, well, let's distract him in the work. Let's mess up the work. Let's get him occupied with this stuff while he's trying to finish the work. So the fifth request, they add this. It's reported among the nation, and Geshem says it also, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, reports you wish to become their king. And you've set up prophets to proclaim that concerning you in Jerusalem, that there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Now they're recycling some old charges here, going back to chapter 2, when they asked publicly, out loud, are you rebelling against the king? Uh, now, that's a dangerous charge. This is not an era in which one would say, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a citizen and I have the right to voice my concerns and exert my freedom of speech. Uh, you know, any mention of your personal rights and off with your head. I mean, that's, that's as serious as it gets. It's an old charge, you know, and it represents a threat, but at this time it's wrapped in a new package. Uh, the letter's addressed to Nehemiah, but it was read aloud to everyone. We know that because in verse 5 we're told not only that this is a letter, but that it was an open letter, which meant, according to the custom of the day, that it would have been read publicly many times between Samaria and Jerusalem, 
repeating this again and again and again. And in addition to the fact that it's public, we've got to pay attention to how this is put. And most critically, there are no facts in it. There's nothing concrete. It's all innuendo. The assertions aren't proven, but they have been reported. Nothing's established, but some guy named Geshem, you know, believes it too. And, and according to those reports, uh, you know, we hear, people are talking, we hear that you want to be the king. And everybody knows there's only one king. And like all gossip, the truth isn't the point, right? The point is to create an atmosphere in which there is suspicion, in which the person at whom it is aimed is occupied in their mind and troubled and can't sleep and is tossing and turning and they can't get their work done. So that some amount of damage is virtually guaranteed to come upon that person's reputation and the work they're trying to do. And once the bell is rung, you can't unring it. It's out. And this very dangerous charge that Nehemiah wishes to set himself up as king is certain to make its way to King Artaxerxes. And Sanballat is saying, I'm happy to endorse it. So what's a guy like Nehemiah to do? Well, he did all he could do by replying with the truth, by telling them that nothing like what you are saying is actually happening. You are just making it up out of your head. And then he adds by way of commentary that all of this was designed to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. So Nehemiah confronts rumor with reality, saw the plot for what it was, but again, at another critical point in which fear could prevail, could have derailed him, Nehemiah prays. He prays this very simple prayer, Lord, strengthen my hands. Now, to pray for strength requires one thing, that you know you're weak. That you can't dig deep enough within yourself or find some source of fortitude in you. You can't, if you're Nehemiah, say, well, I'm a great leader. A few hundred years from now, a few thousand years from now, you're going to get on the internet and you won't be able to exhaust the number of leadership programs that will be designed around my leadership, right? So he comes to the Lord and he says, instead, Lord, I'm too weak for this stuff. Only you are strong enough. Give me strength for the work you've called me to do. It's not in me. Nehemiah has the wisdom that a lot of our kids have but might you know, lose as we get a little older. That I'm weak, but thou art strong. <laughs> it's a good prayer. I would say it's an essential prayer. But then comes another salvo. The first was an attempt to destroy, or to, I'm sorry, to deter him from the work, to take him from it. The next was an attempt, to, an attempt to discourage him in it. And now their aim is to destroy him and the work that goes along with it. Like every other shot they've taken, at first glance, this one appears to be not only harmless, but attractive. Uh, there's no intimidation here. It's quite the opposite. It comes in form of invitation, an invitation from a man named Shemaiah. Uh, this man is introduced as a prophet. We're also told that he's confined to his house. But the other thing is that like, unlike Sanballat and his crew, Shemaiah is not an outsider. He's an insider. He's a fellow Jew. We even get some of the family story. We know his daddy. 
we know his granddaddy. He's a respected member of the community. He's regarded, maybe even respected as a prophet. And that, all of that may figure into why Nehemiah this time actually accepts the invitation and goes and meets with them. So they meet. And Shemaiah says to Nehemiah, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you at night. And at first glance, this seems like the advice of an ally. I mean, your life is in danger and I want to save your life. But it's actually even more than advice. The, the implication of the text here is very strong that Shemaiah is saying, I've got a word from the Lord. I got a word from God. And so you add it all up and you go, well, how about that? A fellow Jew, respected member of the community, a claim to have a word from the Lord? Word that my life is in danger and his, his main goal, it seems like, is to save my life? You know, the plan is to make a beeline for the temple. The language here implies not just in the temple precincts, but within the temple, to, into the holy place, to the very center. And you might think, again, at first pass, you know, what safer place could there be? On the face of it, it is plausible, it's practical, it's actionable, must have been attractive. How could Nehemiah refuse? But Nehemiah not only refuses, he rejects it utterly. He says to Shemaiah, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And you wonder, why did he arrive at such a response? And he arrived there this way. Nehemiah is utterly unconcerned about what might work. He is unconcerned about his own will because what he cares most about and what directs him is God's word. You see, as pious and practical as Shemaiah appears to be, he was asking Nehemiah to do three things that were unthinkable in, the, in light of God's word. He asks him to be pragmatic at the cost of being faithful. He asks him to put his own safety ahead of his work that he has been ordained to. And he asks him to break God's law in order to save himself. Shemaiah's suggestion that they flee to the middle of the temple, you know, might seem safe and reasonable and maybe even pious. I mean, we're getting close to the Lord, aren't we? But Nehemiah is not a priest. And God's law explicitly prohibits him to enter into the courts of the temple. King Uzziah attempted that, and he was lucky to get away with leprosy. But that's just the half of it. Not only is Nehemiah determined not to run to the wrong place, he is determined because of the word of God not to run from the right place. So when he says, should such a man as I run away, that's, that's not, you know, Nehemiah saying, you know, I'm this really important guy. It's about his calling. You might even say it's about his ordination. You're asking me to violate my ordination vows. And that is much bigger than his personal safety. To run away would be to trust himself above the Lord and to abandon what he's been called to for his glory, for the good of his people, and ultimately for the good of the world. So despite Shemaiah's credentials, despite the attractiveness of the plan, despite, you know, how it 
appears to redound to Nehemiah's good and saving his life, Nehemiah just concludes, God has not sent him. He makes that determination not only at this particular point, but on this particular point that Shemaiah's advice was radically out of line with the Word of God. And confirming that fact, he would come to find out that he was paid, paid to give a false prophecy. In another comment, he says that this false prophecy actually had a particular aim to make him afraid, to get him to sin, to give him a bad name, and to taunt him. And I actually think the order of that matters. It's not that he should get him to sin and then be afraid, but that he should get him to be afraid and cause him to sin. That is, that is fertile, fear is fertile ground for sin, isn't it? Like, I'm afraid that if I don't do X or Y or Z, everything's going to fall apart. And I can just speak from my own experience in this as a pastor. I, it is certainly deadly in the ministry. It is the sin that crouches at my doorstep. Fear. You know, I'm afraid what might happen if this person becomes unhappy. I'm afraid what might happen if, if the giving goes down. You know, I'm afraid what might happen if I come to a difficult passage in the Bible and I have to preach on it. Fear. And when, that, when the fear comes, you know, that, that's a critical moment, isn't it? Because it's in that moment that I think, just to boil it all down, and I know there's all kinds of scenarios and ways you can spin it out, but just to boil it all down, when the fear comes, one of two things, I think, happens. You either look to yourself or you look to the Lord. And again, that's, that's not to say here that there's not a whole lot to be afraid of. There's a lot to be afraid of. There almost always is a lot to be afraid of. It doesn't take me much to start getting afraid of things. For Nehemiah, it included all kinds of things, not least the prospect of losing his own life. It's, it's interesting that the goal of his enemies included... You know, not just causing him to be afraid, but causing him to sin. Um, and I suspect these are people who don't care much about uh, God's law, maybe aren't even familiar with God's law. You know, what is it to, to them if Nehemiah steps into this part of the temple or that part of the temple? It doesn't really matter. But what mattered to them is that he should sin so that it would give them cause to give him a bad name to enable them to taunt him, to show for the whole world to see, you know, that all along Nehemiah's trust wasn't really where he said it was. That, you know, he may talk a big game about God, but when it comes to saving his own skin, he does what is practical and actionable, and he is ready to throw God overboard. That was the agenda, and Nehemiah understands the importance of that, not just for himself, but for God's reputation, for his glory for the city, for the world. Now, all that's what happened to Nehemiah, but I think we're left with, with maybe the most important question, and it's the one we nearly always deal with when we have to deal with trials and difficulties like this. And the question is not what has happened to me. The question is why has it happened to me? I mean, yes, the Lord's been faithful in enabling Nehemiah to withstand these terrible assaults faithfully. But the question is, why does he allow any of it to begin with? I mean, Lord, would it be too much for us to learn faithfulness just through the triumphs with no trials? How about nothing but success without all the sorrow? 
You know, can we just live unto the Lord without having to die to ourselves? Why does he allow that? Well, it seems to me he allows it, and I will say more than allows it, gives it. Because he has something better for store in us than our best life now. He allows it and gives it because he wants us to believe the gospel and live the gospel so that we would discover in the living of our life where our life actually is. So that what what grows in this life is the glory of the life to come. That we would know there's more to our life than our life. That the story is bigger than my life movie. Because it's there in the trials and the difficulties and the suffering, it is in being on the receiving end, as Nehemiah was, of the ridicule, of the threats, of the hatred and the schemes, that you can begin to discover by the grace of God something I think is impossible to understand otherwise. That fullness of life is not had in securing the power or the reputation or the success or the wealth or the ease, or whatever other brass ring you and I are trying to grab onto. Our life is in the Lord. God allows the trouble so that we might experience that which is not only commended all over the scriptures in the Christian life, but that which is described as the normal condition of the Christian life. That we would have fellowship with Jesus Christ in his suffering. Now, sharing in his sufferings is not an exercise in self-atonement. It's not that we should suffer more than Jesus did for us or ever could or merit more before God than Jesus has already merited for us. It is instead to believe and live as one who acknowledges that Jesus is king in a world that would insist that there are other kings to whom our knee must be bent. It is to live as one whose loyalties are to his kingdom in a world which would insist that there are greater kingdoms to which we must be loyal or we will be regarded as traitors. It is to live as one after greater treasures than that which the world would tell us are the ultimate treasures. It is to live as one whose life is contoured by kingdom commitments in which the word of Jesus and the ways of King Jesus are pursued so that we follow Jesus in such a way that as the old Puritan prayer puts it, We are people who live by paradox. Discovering as the prayer goes that the way down is the way up. That the way, that to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive so that we would find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. It's a striking thing that sharing in Christ's sufferings throughout the Bible is associated with joy. (laughs) Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, says Peter. Count it all joy when you meet fiery trials of various kinds, says James. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heavens, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, says Jesus. 
The Lord is gracious to teach us this, not merely by way of explanation, but he gets it into our experience. That our fellowship with Jesus would go deeper than merely remembering him or learning about him or trying to imitate him, but so that we would actually receive this blessing of sharing in his life and discovering in the joys and the sorrows, the triumphs and the trials, in the living and the dying, the way of the cross and counting that as all joy. This is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was in fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf in our sinless life and in taking upon himself the horrific consequences, not of his own sin, but of yours and mine on the cross that should have fallen upon us. He was building a city. He was constructing the new Jerusalem with himself as the temple, with himself as the sacrifice, so that even as he was torn down, he would be raised up. And he would become the locus of redemption for people from every tribe and tongue and nation who follow him, who share in his life. That's how the city of God will come to be built through the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the greater reward, the greater weight of glory he's working into us by grace. That's the city he's called us to inhabit with him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, would you teach us to live by paradox? Uh, And Lord, would our supreme love be our Lord Jesus? And Lord, may we look to your cross, that we would be people of the cross, that we would know that you have given us this great gift of sharing in the life of Christ, of knowing that this world does not provide anything in comparison with what you have already given to us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we are grateful to live in a beautiful world with its many gifts, and we enjoy them, but we are so prone to making those gifts God's. So, Lord, give us a capacity to love Jesus more. Give us a capacity to suffer more, that we might live in, that we might make a start in this life of the life to come. We thank you as we come to the table. You feed us here and you prepare us for that life together. We thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen.